0: Hi, it's Chris Deeren here, back for the second episode of the New Statesman Podcast's Scottish election special. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a review. Now, let's begin. In this episode we'll be discussing the splits and rows dividing the yes campaign and also how Scotland's artistic community, its musicians, novelists and poets, became so entangled in the push for independence If you do ask artists for input,
1: you know you will get slightly maverick kind of characters popping up who won't want to fit into anyone's You know, party. And that's quite good. I I like that. I think there should be a laugh along the way.
2: We accept that Scotland can detach from the union. What we don't understand is how does it extricate itself from the welfare state, for example. It's very clear uh, that that case hasn't been built yet.
0: Ricky Ross and Darren McGarvey there, two musicians and activists who have been redoubtable campaigners in the independence movement. They'll be joining me later in the podcast. First, what's been happening in the past seven days? Well... It was manifesto launch week. A positive programme for government that will secure a green
2: recovery for Scotland.
0: Put recovery first, not independence. That means a recovery plan for the NHS. An economic recovery that stops widespread unemployment. A
2: full-scale post-pandemic remobilisation of the NHS.
0: The Greens, Lib Dems, Conservatives and the SNP all unveiled their manifestos in the past week. The SNP described its offering as a bold and ambitious policy programme to kickstart and drive recovery and Nicola Sturgeon as a safe, steady and experienced hand, making her sound a little like a used car with one careful owner. That thorny issue of the timing of any second independence referendum was addressed too. It would be...
2: Only when the crisis has passed, but in time then to equip our parliament with the full powers it needs to drive our
0: long-term recovery. So, not now, not ages, sort of after Covid, but not too long after, but definitely soonish. Definitely. Maybe. That's cleared that up then. It's a positive policy programme
2: focused on... Scottish
0: Conservative leader Douglas Ross launched his party's manifesto, promising to no one's surprise that they would vigorously oppose a second referendum. Using the powers of the Scottish Parliament to their maximum, rather than complaining that they're never enough. There was also some good old-fashioned Tory meat. They would cut taxes for high earners and also cut the size of the Cabinet from 12 ministers to six. MSP and ministerial pay would be frozen for the next five years. The Tories would also double the maximum sentence for assaults on emergency workers, introduce whole life sentences, end the presumption against short sentences and end automatic early release. Douglas Ross, it's clear, is blue, right down to his Maggie Thatcher underpants. Labour had planned to release their manifesto on Tuesday, but then this happened.
2: From next Monday, uh, all shops, which are still closed, uh, will be able to reopen. Yep,
0: and on the day Labour were preparing to, to unleash to their up. box of treats on the voters, Nicola Sturgeon decided to announce that lockdown restrictions will begin to ease from Monday, April 26th. Welcome news for the Scottish public, who, like the little match girl, have had their faces pressed against the glass as Liberty has returned south of the border. Not such good news for Labour, though, who were forced to delay their launch, having already put it back once following the death of the Duke of Edinburgh. We were meant to do Tuesday. we have been told to expect a, a statement from the Scottish Government that was, that was unscheduled. So we're having to move our manifesto date again. That's frustrating. Anas Sarwar there, speaking on the BBC Sunday politics show. Sturgeon, by the way, said later that the announcement wasn't unscheduled at all, resulting in a brief and hugely enjoyable Twitter spat between the two party leaders. Anyway, scheduled or not, Labour's delay does mean they're the last of the major parties to release their manifesto. And as of this recording, at least, we're still waiting. I'm joined now by a familiar voice. Alva Ray has popped over from her usual seat on the regular editions of the New Statesman podcast. Hello, Alva.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. Doing a little bit of podcast tourism.
0: That's right. And it's uh, it's especially interesting to, to see you because while I'm still confined to the house, you're presumably making trips to the zoo and enjoying spa breaks and going on roller coasters and things like that. Are you having fun now lockdown's passed?
3: <laughs> I mean, you'd think so. But the problem with London, with outdoor socialising a lot, I'm sorry to say that to Scottish listeners who aren't allowed to do that, but I mean, I think don't be too jealous because actually it's impossible to get a table anywhere unless you were super organized and booked something months ago. So um, I have been enjoying a little bit more freedom and I've been in parliament quite a bit as I'm sure we're going to come on to, but yeah, um, it's, it, it's not quite a return to freedom in the way that you would expect just because London is so busy.
0: Well, we'll, we'll take some comfort from that, I think. Um, <laughs> as you say, you've been in Parliament this week. Now you're actually allowed to leave the House. Mm-hmm. This devolved election could have sizable consequences, not just for Scotland, but for the whole of the, the UK. So what's the view from Westminster on the campaign so far?
3: Yeah, so I, I'll begin with something a little bit depressing to say, and then and then I'll move on to to what I think the the views are from Westminster. But I think probably the top line, um, which is, you know, not not really great for for democracy or the state of our politics, is that really the as you say, this hugely important um, election to the Scottish Parliament isn't coming up as much with MPs as you would probably expect, given that absolutely everyone acknowledges how seismic this election will be um so I mean it it feels like over the past few weeks the organic conversations that you have with MPs I suppose most of them are English but some of them are also Scottish um the organic conversations have been about Greensill have been about the violence in Northern Ireland have been about football a lot this week um and less so about the campaign in scotland unless you specifically bring it up um but when you do i think that you could probably summarize it by saying that there's like quite a lot of anxiety among conservatives in westminster about how douglas ross is doing i think that there is basically just a bit of dismay at the, the perceived incoherence of his messaging and i think privately some scottish conservatives feel like the way he's framing some of his arguments just basically bolsters the SNP argument that a Hollywood majority um, would be a mandate for another referendum. Um, But I think that's all refracted through a very Westminster-centric and number 10-centric lens in that it's viewed really through the power dynamics in Downing Street and tensions within the union unit and um, I think in particular tensions between Boris Johnson and Michael Gove um, for a long time it's not really this will shock absolutely no one listening to this that I think Scotland is really seen as Boris Johnson's Achilles heel and um, you know he's he's famously incredibly unpopular in Scotland it makes it very very tricky when, whenever he tries to do visits um, and so on I think that um it's always been a point of sensitivity that to raise that, that sort of area of weakness is to, to risk looking disloyal to Boris Johnson and to sort of implicitly be more supportive of Michael Gove. It's quite well known that they don't have exactly the same perspective on the strategy for Scotland. And, and so I think, I think that, you know, there's a tension there, especially Michael Gove being Scottish. I think that, the, the Scotland issue is very much seen through a Boris Johnson versus Michael Gove lens, which is quite interesting. But generally, I think it's not super positive, the, um, the feeling in the Conservative camp.
0: And Alva, what would you tell us about the Labour Party's position on the Scottish election and their view of how things are, are moving in terms of the union?
3: Again, the, like the top line is that I'm surprised at how little the Scottish campaign is coming up um that really the anxieties are around how Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet is getting on and um, you know how you know briefings against his staff and um, of a sort of there's a mood of discontent a little bit among some members of the shadow cabinet and some MPs with Keir Starmer and his team um, and so the focus you know the anxieties are about Hartlepool or, or the elections in the abstract and much less about the campaign in Scotland in particular. Um, but then I think when you do push people on Scotland, the feeling is that Anna Sawar is a huge upgrade <laughs> on Richard Leonard and he did very well in those initial Scottish debates. So insofar as it comes up, I think they they have cause to be feeling quite positive.
0: Boris Johnson has promised a, a flat no on a second independence referendum, regardless of the result in, in May, it seems. Is there a sense that this position can hold or that it's more of a, a bargaining chip? Is there a preparation for a almost a constitutional civil war between Scotland and Westminster after the election?
3: Um I think that I I have a sense that Scottish Conservatives don't know. <laughs> um, that I think that there's a real there's a real feeling of of a divide on that issue between Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. And I think that there's just a real will for someone to grip this from the centre. And so I, I I think I kind of couldn't tell you. And it's because I think they don't really know. Um, and at this point, they are just desperately hoping that the SNP don't get a majority, which I think tells you all that you need to know that they aren't confident that the, if the SNP did win a majority, that they would be able to deny a second referendum.
0: How we hear quite regularly now plans uh, to reform the UK as a whole we've got, you know, uh, Keir Starmer, has asked gordon brown to look at reforming the constitution across the uk boris johnson's been talking about a royal commission so it's the sense that scottish independence or more devolution or whatever it's going to be would actually be part of a, a package of measures to reform the whole of the uk the house of lords english regionalism more direct, directly elected mayors uh you know scotland uh, with a, its superpowered parliament something for northern ireland and, and wales i'm just wondering whether at westminster there's any real enthusiasm for that or whether it's it's sort of a response to the revolting uh, periphery if you like or if there's a genuine desire to modernize the united kingdom
3: that's a really interesting question i think um i think that actually people in general across the parties see that as quite a a pertinent analysis and response to the political anxieties across the uk i think it feels very genuine um that the people who want to see the union maintained see devolution and devolving power to people and get you know giving people powers closer to home is a way of of allaying some of those tensions across politics um so i actually think that there is quite a genuine enthusiasm for that and it doesn't feel i suppose Scotland is the most urgent issue, but I think that people feel like that's a very good diagnosis of problems across the board in politics and a good way of solving it. So I actually don't, I think that, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of MPs who don't really care, especially on the Conservative side. But I think in general, um, it is sort that that's quite a, quite a helpful approach.
0: Thanks, Alva. Really good to see you.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Alva and Stephen will be back on Friday for the next episode of the New Statesman podcast. And you can read their brilliant political commentary and analysis on the New Statesman website. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for just £12 by visiting newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. After the break.
1: Only stupid people would want to go to an independence referendum When it's 51 one week and 49 the next, when it's a slam dunk, then you call a referendum, I'm sure.
0: Musician and broadcaster Ricky Ross joins me, along with Darren McGarvey, also known as Loki the Rapper, to give their judgment on the campaign so far and to reflect on a tumultuous past year for the independence movement. Welcome to today's guests, who I might describe as two progressive polymaths, policy provocateurs and pop princes. Darren McGarvey is a commentator and author of the excellent book Poverty Safari, which won the 2018 Orwell Award. He also presented the recent BBC Scotland series Darren McGarvey's Class Wars, which examined how social class shapes our identities and destinies. Speaking of identities, Darren is also a rapper who goes by the name of Loki. Ricky Ross is best known as the lead singer and songwriter of the much-loved Deacon Blue, with too many hits under his belt to mention. He presents the show Another Country on BBC Radio Scotland and works with international charities addressing poverty and women's rights, issues like that in Africa. As if that wasn't enough, both Darren and Ricky are activists for Scottish independence cause that seems to be teeming with Scottish artists, many of whom were heavily involved in the 2014 referendum and remain so today. Uh, welcome, both of you, to the New Statesman podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Lovely to be here. I'm going to start with you, Darren. You, you established yourself as something of a unique voice when it comes to the political debate in Scotland. And In Poverty Safari, you brought a perspective and insight that had perhaps been missing up, up to that point. We're now into the guts of this election campaign. And I wonder what you think of the place poverty has been given by the political parties. We've obviously been through a year of hardship for many people, if not everyone. Um, But as ever, it's those at the wrong end of the economy who tend to to bear the brunt. So as we emerge from lockdown, do you have the sense that the politicians have grasped the scale of the challenge or are developing policies that are up to the task?
2: You will expect me to say no, no in a general sense, and and I, I would say no. However, I do feel Labour appears to be re-energised in some way, um, you know, Sarwar coming in and really having the benefit of, of a sweet spot opening up in the political landscape as a result of COVID kind of benching the second independence referendum for the next couple of years at least, which means he can afford to soften the rhetoric around independence and so instead of talking about that he talks about the old arguments which I think is one of those kind of tough on crime tough on the causes of crime sort of phrases that plays quite well to lots of different people and this has given him a real uh, focus in terms of how he deals with um political debate because basically the two policies that are associate with labor are the jobs guarantee for young people, and the commitment to ending child poverty and, you know, whatever else they've got going on, that's the stuff that's cutting through to me. And I, I I, have a an appropriate level of consumption of political news. I'm not across everything every single day. I think I'm more representative of an ordinary voter in terms of the, the messaging that I receive and how across everything I am. So um, whereas the, the SNP, they... they they, uh, not only is the record, you know, up for debate in terms of these issues, but also they seem to be convulsing in political insecurity with this kind of, um, you know, uh, just a nerf gun firing out universal freebies to everyone. Oh, you 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 could do a universal freebie. Pew! There's free dental care. Pew! There's another thing. Uh, there's no kind of overarching vision or or kind of. Um, there's no principle except maybe just power for power's sake, driving it forward. I know they're in a difficult position, but I think Labour's cutting through.
0: You uh, recently produced a, a television programme on on class, and it's, it's something of interest to me and something that's always at the centre of discussions about British politics and I'm interested in what place class has in Scottish politics and wider Scottish life. We, for example, we don't really have the curse of the Etonian born-to-rule class in Scotland. And indeed, relatively few Scots are educated privately. The Holyrood rings to a variety of accents, and even the leaders of the parties are, are from relatively ordinary Beginnings. In what way does class intersect with Scottish life? What, what do we mean when we talk about class in a Scottish context?
2: Well, we could talk about it in the traditional sense in terms of what your relationship is to the means of production. But in politics, we, we can see class uh, expressed as the, the social backgrounds of, of, of most of the people in Parliament, uh, you know, would would be categorised by media, for example, as ABC1 which means that they have a certain disposable income, which means they have certain economic interests, they might own multiple properties. and so while I think that 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 we can have shared values across class divides. Um, and I think that we can have a shared vision of a society. I mean we can all like houses. We can all say, well, I really believe in houses, but if you own a house and you make a, and you draw an income from renting that house out and you're someone who rents from a landlord, then you have diametrically opposed economic interests at points. And politics exists primarily to reconcile these uh, conflicts of interest. But that becomes difficult when the political class shares the same economic interests as, uh, you know, very privileged uh, sections of the population.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and ricky you have been campaigning on on poverty both here and overseas for for many years what what's your insight into 20 years of devolution and, and the way our political classes have a uh, targeted the, some of the real deep-seated problems in scottish society which the parliament in a sense was set up to give a stronger focus on
1: yeah scottish devolution is is, is a bit hard to quantify chris because it's only been 20 years and i think 20 years is a short time in terms of other parliaments across the world so i think that's that's one of these ones that's almost impossible what interests me is the fact that you know things that i have been interested involved in um you mentioned you know poverty clearly i'm not someone that's lived in poverty but interestingly enough in the last few years I've been involved in the poverty truth commission here which is is a really interesting group of people who try and bring other people in from different parts of society to to explain what it feels like uh, and one of the things that also happens, I think, has interested in me over the last few years, has been uh, prisons, going into prisons, for example, doing doing gigs, uh, visiting people, people, knowing people in in, in prisons. Um, doing a documentary a few years ago about the chances of people actually re- being rehabilitated. And none of these things, these things don't get talked about during elections at all. No one really wants to touch them. And yet people get up in arms about crime, punishment and crime, you do hear talk in between elections of people saying, no, no, you know, there's far too many people in jail. But really, there's been, there'll never be any concern for these things. And I sometimes think elections are bad for these kind of social issues because they purposely get pushed to one side. I mean, you know, you you could name other ones. The other one that's really close to my heart is international development. I mean, um, but, but, but thinking on a wider scale, you know, i just seen another party launch a manifesto, no one is talking about climate change, which you could argue is the only issue that really matters to anyone because it will change everything.
0: And it it does seem that climate change uh, uh, and and many other issues are are sort of at the heart of much of the independence conversation these days. It's about what Scotland could do if it was outside the the control of, of the Westminster Parliament However, whatever position people want to to take on that. Uh, there is a sense that independence would allow us to tackle poverty, to tackle the criminal justice system, to tackle climate change in the way we would if only we didn't have Westminster holding us back. But but to be fair, a lot of that stuff could have been managed over the last 20 years, perhaps more aggressively than, than, it, than it has been. So how does that fit into your view of the case for independence?
1: Well, I think the case for independence really comes down to what is second choice and what's not first choice for me what's proved not to be first choice at the moment is the Westminster system and you know the other issue that is clearly going to be a big factor in this issue is what's going on at the moment and I think there's seven different inquiries going on into, into corruption in the Westminster system and I was thinking back to the last time the Tories were were really in power, it was the same narrative. It was the same stuff going on. And think, how many times can this go on? And someone made the point on Twitter the other day that you know we do have scandals, we do have uh, financial scandals, we do have p- politicians <laughs> completely off the rails here, but they're almost as nothing as the scale of what's going on. And I think that you know, as someone who's lived under, I, I lived a long time. I, I'm pretty old. Uh, and, you know, a long time under Westminster rule, I really can't see the attraction in it. And and I think at a time like this, when you're seeing the levels of uh, potential corruption, certainly until, I mean, I say potential because there's not been a, a full inquiry, but it just looks really bad. And I think that, you know, I still think who would want to, to live under that system when, when there seems to be a way out of that but no way out with the other system. That's what I, that's what I find uh, astonishing. There doesn't seem to be a very clear-cut way of, of getting rid of Westminster government with all the horrible thing of first-past-the-post politics, all that kind of stuff as well. Uh, and I think that's why people think, well, a fresh start, a smaller country, a, a chance to actually do things quickly, uh, democratically, is still attractive. Albeit, I take your point, which is that some of these things could have been happening.
0: Hmm. And, and Darren, the um, the polls suggest that the SNP and or the Greens and or ALBA are on course for a majority, an overall majority at, at Holyrood, which uh, they will take as a, a mandate to uh, hold a second independence referendum. It's obviously been a tricky year for the Yes movement. There's been a lot of rows going on. The, uh, the Alba party is perhaps the most high profile of the splinter parties that have sprung up. And there's little love lost between the the, the various wings. How does that that affect your view of the campaign for independence, your um, desire to, to, to be active in the movement, your, your uh, belief in the saleability of the, the product, if you like?
2: My view, and I have been articulating this since after the referendum and and haven't won a popularity contest yet within the Yes movement for it, but my view is that while there has been an upswing in theoretical support for independence, i.e. a pollster phones a thousand people and says... Are you cool with independence? And they say yes on the phone. This does not translate to actually people turning up at the ballot box to vote, having contended with serious questions about currency, having contested with serious questions about not only... We accept that Scotland can detach from the union. What we don't understand is how does it extricate itself from the welfare state, for example? What if a question like that comes up? These are the sort of things that I don't possess the knowledge uh, to make arguments about, yet yeah, I'm kind of relying on a political machine doing a bit of the legwork and then giving me a sort of itemised form that I can then uh, consume and regurgitate on television. And uh, so basically, when you see Sturgeon the other day being uh, interviewed, not just being given tough questions about the drug crisis, uh, but being asked serious questions about the economics of independence, it's very clear uh, that that argument in that case hasn't been built yet. So how do you have a referendum? Not just when, when, in the aftermath of COVID, when I think even many in the Yes movement see a case for for pausing, uh, for caution, but also when your vulnerability as a campaign and as a political movement is being broadcast so vividly, it's so clear where the vulnerabilities in the yes case are, and they're in precisely the same places as they were before. It's just I think we've inhaled a little too deeply of this uh, Boris Brexit bounce uh, that was inevitable, and and uh, and and so that that becomes a kind of a, an excuse to sort of not consider doing the other legwork. It's a bit like the Cor- Corbynism in a sense that. I think that the part of the seductive nature of Corbynism was not necessarily all of the policies that, that he was advocating, but it was the idea for the left that it was a shortcut through all the hard work that has to be done on the ground and grassroots and communities talking to people, walking alongside people, uh, and, until their concerns become a matter of intuition uh, and not this theoretical thing that uh, there's part of discourse on Twitter.
1: I think that's a really good point by the way and it goes back to the point which is you know I think that when down talks about the Corbynism thing you know one of the things that they avoided and one of the things they disliked was they seemed to dislike the idea that you carry out some policy and you get into government and you you you, you do it now one of the ideas about behind gradualism that Alex Salmon for example was was a big advocate of was to say give us you know a chance with devolution let us show you that we can do government well and then perhaps you'll you, you, naturally it will fall into independence and i think that's why I, I sort of agree with darren wholeheartedly on these questions not being answered but also because it's got to be proven by by action and, and I, I don't doubt that people will want dev, will want more than devolution i'm sure when you sort of see things getting changed and you can change things but the point about it is, we're not at that point yet, and of course, only stupid people would want to go to an independence referendum when it's fifty-one one week and forty-nine the next, and even fifty-three. You know, the point about it is, when it's a when it's a slam dunk, then you call a referendum, I'm sure.
0: And of course, we we um, we haven't been. Closer to to that slam dunk than we have been in the past maybe seven or eight months where we had polls consistently around 55, as high as 58%. And this kind of predated the the, the culmination of the Salmond affair and the inquiry, the rest of it, and and the the setting up of ALBA. Um, I suppose... If you are indie curious to use the, the word that's often used, um, and you're looking at uh, where the nationalist movement is now and you see these splits and you you see the, the bad blood between many of the people at the top, and, and you know, you as, as Darren says, your vote, um, or maybe you've spoken to a pollster and said, I'm, I'm thinking about voting for independence. This stuff isn't going to fill you full of, of hope. You, you've got to find a way to detach the case for independence from the individuals and the parties that are actually arguing for it do, do you understand that the people might be wobbling a little bit at the moment just in in terms of um the last few months and people's yes. behavior and oh I,
2: I, absolutely I, I mean I'm 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 one of them my my commitment to independence is 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 has been kind of almost lifelong you know in terms of and 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 the, and the reasoning behind it's changed over the years I think it was an ideological thing and it was based on a conception of Scotland as an oppressed country. Rather than just like a willing accomplice of the British Empire, um, and, and so you know you, you come to you come to the arguments with a bit more maturity. It's also been informed by spending time with people who voted no and actually listening to them and speaking to them, um, and and so I don't get a sense in my travels around the country at various points in communities talking to people either that there is a big movement in communities for independence right now. Or, or or, that even if there w- was, that that goes anywhere beyond the discussion that exists primarily on social media currently. I always go back to the to the moment that the Clack Manager result came in. Shout out to Clack Manager, forever synonymous with the no vote now, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. But I always remember that being a big moment where I was like, wow, I, d- I started to understand how powerful social media is and making you think that the whole world is just like you. But that was, you know, we hadn't really come to understand how disruptive social media truly was then. And so I'm always living in fear of experiencing that moment again, where it's like, ah, right, okay, so it's just my news feed that made me feel like we were on the cusp of something there. I just I don't see why... We have to rush it and to be honest, whether Sturgeon wins a majority or not, I don't think her instincts will allow her to play kind of fast and loose with us anyway.
1: Chris, the the other thing though is that the real problem is not to think about the yes movement, is to think about the no movement for a second, because their problem is they've got they haven't really got best, you know, best service from anyone. Um so so their best hope is Let's face it, a fairly incompetent politician at the moment who seems to be leading them. And I I just looked at the Tories' manifesto launch and it was two negatives. You think, that's not a way to go into an election is to say no to referendum, no to, you know what I mean? It doesn't seem like a very engaging, um, imaginative prospectus. So that's one problem. The second problem is you've got Anasarwar who seems to sort of want, he's not one to cause any offence to anyone. He's wanting to bring people on. So, but he's not really giving people, you know, I'm, I'm your unionist vote either. He doesn't seem to be saying that. So, and the others, well, I'm not sure that there are any, others are really that, that, that to be taken that seriously. But that seems to be the problem is, is, is what is the alternative at the moment? The yes side have a momentum and a narrative and have been in government and people, and we've been through a year of trauma. Which has been led by someone really, really competent, you know, and I think that that I think that's probably underscoring everything about this election at the moment
0: hmm. well listen while i while, while 've got you both here um two prominent members of scotland's artistic community i'd, I'd like to just talk to you a bit about the, the the commitment to independence that seems to exist at such a broad and deep level and in that community among scotland's artists and it's always um interested me, maybe confused me a little. It's it's not like the the movement for Scottish independence is the same as the freedom movement facing the strictures of communism or apartheid. We live in what is in many ways, and according to international comparisons, a successful, free, important country. What is it drives the independence instinct, particularly among creative types, whether it's novelists or songwriters or painters or whatever? Ricky, do you want to go first on that?
1: yeah because because Darren can give you a more contemporary take on this, but let me give you the historic take on it i was the one time i sort of got close to s n p was late nineties and um Mike Russell asked me to organize a night for of artists and we 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 organized what was i mean it was the worst event of my life i've got to tell you it was the, it was the worst event of my life and what i what was interesting to me was that there was no one there, there was a few people left over from the uh, the sort of 92 camp. But there wasn't really, people did not want to commit to independence at that time. It was quite interesting. And it was it was a kind of saddest event I've ever been involved in with all these kind of backwoodsmen coming out of the SNP just to fill up the numbers and kilts. And I thought to myself, never, ever again will I get involved in anything like this. But what was apparent at that time was that the lack of, of of anyone in in. Lots of people in the arts movement just being very, very wary of the independence debate, and then suddenly, over the course of the next 10, 15 years, that went just completely the opposite way around. You're right. I mean, you can, it's hard finding people who are who are off, and people sometimes keep their head down. I don't yeah. know what Darren yeah. would say
2: about that. Yeah, there is a. I think that there are many different levels to it as well because you have a lot of young young people because maybe they don't necessarily have a great deal of, of responsibility yet and nor should they um they're, they're exploring their creativity they're exploring their more kind of adventurous impulses and and so there's naturally a political expression of that you see obviously that as people get older they may, may develop more conservative impulses once they have something to conserve and and so it just it Although I do, I do, I, I do urge caution in terms of essentialising the arts as 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 a sort of pro indie thing. I think, as well as it being predominantly pro indie, I think there's a real danger that some artists, younger artists, were kind of. Uh, subsumed by the Scottish National Party at the referendum. I remember National Collective and getting into big ding-dongs with them on Twitter because I was like, hang on a minute, I thought this was about being troublemakers, you know, and then <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, all right, it's right, we're, we're only to make trouble for certain people, I get it, okay, and I was really dead against that, you know, I was dead against that. So I think there's a danger and then also there's a self-interest sometimes subconsciously, I think, as well, where, you know, regional artists um, think that they might stand a better chance of of being a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And I think that that's a, a valid kind of uh, reading of of, of of your own interests as an artist. It can be difficult if you don't get a break. Um, at the level of the UK to do anything but kind of be parked in a sort of sometimes quite inward-looking Scottish cultural uh, discussion. And uh, and so, you know, a lot of people might think, well, you know, I might have a better chance to make an impact if I'm not being uh, written off by London executives or London music industry people or whatever.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point that makes as well because, you know, I think as Darren said earlier on, it's very difficult for us to argue economics and so on and so forth about policy. But I've always been able to feel I could make a case for independence via music, broadcasting things that I know about that I've felt really wrongly, not treated, but you know, what I mean, I, th- I feel that we, we don't get a fair shake. Uh, when, when it comes to, to a lot of these things. And, and not just for reasons that Dan said, you know, we could be bigger fish in a smaller pod, not that reason at all, but just the basic the basics of decision-making, where decisions are made, where power is based, and that's got huge, huge impact on how things are commissioned, how things are broadcast, how things get released, you know, by, you know, by records. So there's lots to be, you know, I still think there's a very good argument to be made by anyone who 's involved in any aspect of life about the things they know about about independence, not not try and imagine things that you know i 'm going to leave economics to people, but I, I still feel in my sphere i can argue
0: i can make that argument yeah. I, I wonder whether there 's a danger though that at some point the politics overwhelms the art um, I remember in two thousand and fourteen after the no vote alan warner who 's a brilliant novelist. Give an interview or a statement or something like that, which he effectively said that the Scottish voters had betrayed its artistic community by voting no when they wanted them to to vote yes and just thinking, what, what are you talking? talking about and you know it's it's that sense that you it's a bit like red wedge that you get so involved actually it starts to affect the legitimacy of art for art's sake
2: oh absolutely I I mean as an an artist a writer a commentator now doing bloody god knows everything now and uh, I can I I only speak for myself but you know sometimes uh, me removing my head from my own backside requires a surgical procedure you know like you can you can sort of get a bit too involved in how you think and feel and talking to people who agree with you and so it's a sort of constant process of ego inflation and then ego deflation and I think sometimes artists might speak uh, publicly about things when they're in that process of inflation and and not necessarily everything that comes out of their mouth should be taken with anything but a, a, a grain of salt
1: yeah, but I, th- I mean I, I remember the argument. I mean, was it was I think it was actually basically Muriel Gray I mean, who's gone sort of full circle on these things. Way back in after the ninety two election, you know, people were too scared, so you know, almost sacked the electorate kind of thing, you know. And it was like Jim Sillars, I'm gonna take a big half. That's that's just I mean, that's just stupidity. But the thing is, if you know, if as I think Darren mentioned this as well, if you if you do ask artists, and I've 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 found this out well Years ago in Artists for Independence, if you do ask them for their input, you'll get some crazy kind of responses. You know, you will get slightly maverick kind of characters popping up who won't want to fit into anyone's, you know, party. And that's quite good. I, I like that. I think there should be a laugh along the way. And it's good that we don't get, you know, overtaken by politics. So I think the, art, the, the thing with artists is, is they are quite unpredictable. And that's,
0: that's what keeps the whole thing kind of quite interesting for me. Okay. Well, we'll we'll have to draw a line under uh, this today. Sadly, I could carry on for some time. Uh, One last question for you both, and I just want a number from you both. What year will the next independence referendum be held in, Ricky? I
1: I really, really hope it won't be this year. Um, I would love to think it would be next year because that would mean, for me, we would be back to life as we knew it, in the sense that people could gather in rooms, because I think there'd be something really healthy about being in town halls and doing all that kind of stuff. So I think that would be great. So if it was held next year, I would be very happy with that. Um, But I would only be happy with it if there was that very strong 60% and moving upwards kind of number. Darren?
2: I I, I would say 2023, and it's really just uh, the minimum. And the reason for that is that, we have been largely insulated from the economic impacts of what has gone on in the last 12 months. And once the, the, va- the vaccines begin to take effect and we return to some kind of normality, then we're going to have another big debate about how does it all get paid for. And I just don't see how you can create space within that discussion for uh, an argument about independence, which is not very, very carefully calibrated to deal with those specific arguments.
0: A lot to look forward to. Well, thank you again to Darren McGarvey and Ricky Ross for being on the New Statesman podcast. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next Wednesday for another Scottish election special. Stephen, Anoush and Alva are here on Friday and again on Tuesday. Until next time. You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast. I'm Chris Deeran. You can read more of the New Statesman Scottish election coverage at newstatesman.com and follow me on Twitter at, at Chris Deeren. This podcast was produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen